Hey everyone, welcome to our first episode of Catching Up on Crime. We are super excited to get things started. I'm Melinda and I'm here with Jenna. Hi, this is Jenna calling in from Chicago. And today I'm going to present the case of Conrad Roy III. So keep on listening and join us as we catch up on crime. Conrad Roy III was the son of divorced parents Lynn Roy and Conrad Roy Jr. He was from Mattapoisett, Massachusetts. He worked with his dad, grandfather, and uncle in the marine salvage business, and he had gotten his captain's license just a few weeks before his death. His family stated that he was very proud of this and worked very hard to get it. His grandfather, Conrad Roy, lovingly referred to him as the C3. I thought that was very cute. From this point on, I will refer to Conrad Roy III just as Conrad, as not to confuse anyone with his father and grandfather. Conrad himself stated, that he had depression and social anxiety. In a video he recorded of himself, he stated, I want to be more proactive in conversation and more confident. These were things that he was going to work on to make himself feel better. In October, 2012, Conrad was hospitalized for an acetaminophen overdose. After this, he told his mother that he would never do that again. Conrad had taken and was taking several different types of prescribed psychiatric medications throughout his lifetime. Michelle Carter was from Plainsville, Massachusetts. She had been described as a pretty girl and a good student. She was also described by classmates as not part of any group. She sometimes overcompensated and lavished attention. She had developed an eating order reportedly around the age of eight or nine. And around age 14, Michelle started taking prescription psychotic medications. During the time of her relationship with Conrad, she texts her friends often that she is lonely and just wants to fit in. At some point, she went to the McLean Hospital to be treated for anorexia. She encouraged Conrad to also get treatment for his depression. However, he declined that. Conrad and Michelle met in Florida in February of 2012, while they were both visiting family members. They lived just an hour or so away, but they only met a handful of times. It was said that their relationship was built strictly around text messages. Most of his family knew that they might have an on and off again friendship, but really didn't get the extent that they were boyfriend and girlfriend. It was also stated that Michelle herself never considered Conrad her boyfriend to other people in her school until after he had passed away. On July 13, 2014, Conrad, only 18 years old, committed suicide by carbon monoxide poisoning. He was in his own car behind the Kmart. Before he did this, though, he got numerous text messages from his girlfriend, Michelle. What I would say, and I think most people would agree with, were encouraging him to kill himself. Michelle told him he could do it by, quote, drinking bleach, hang yourself, jump off a bridge, or stab yourself, end quote. I thought it was very interesting that before Conrad died, he left notes which included passwords to his phone and computer. So to me, this meant he wanted others to know about the text that Michelle was sending him. When detectives got this information and got all those texts, they immediately went to speak with Michelle. They asked her if she had been in contact with Conrad on the day that he took his life, and she stated, I quote, I think so, end quote. Knowing full well she had been in contact with him throughout numerous text messages and a couple of phone calls. He called her, and they talked for over 40 minutes, and then she later called him, and they talked again for over 40 minutes, and that was the last phone call made by Conrad. She did make several calls to him after that last phone call, which to some show that she didn't know what was exactly happening. It is also true that Conrad sent her several texts 
saying something on the lines of, I'm going to do it tonight, and then he would never go through with it. On February 5, 2015, the grand jury indicted Michelle for involuntary manslaughter, which is wanton and reckless conduct resulting in a death. The prosecutor stated it was a sick game of life and death. She was just 17 at the time, and the court indicted her as a youthful offender rather than a juvenile, which meant that she could be sentenced as an adult. Michelle's attorney, however, stated that this was not a crime due to her constitutional right of free speech. They appealed the grand jury indictment, but this was denied. Michelle would go to trial until three years later on June 5, 2017. The trial would not go before a jury, however. It would only be presented to a judge. This was because Michelle waived her right to a jury trial. See, jurors are just normal people like you and I, and most of us base a lot of our decisions and deciding factors on emotions, whereas a judge must base his decision on the law that he was sworn to uphold. I think she, and I'm sure with the guidance of her attorney, thought this would be a better or easier route for her to take. I have to say that I agree with her because I can't imagine 12 jurors listening to all those texts and finding her innocent. The prosecution presented that Michelle did this for attention, showing that three days prior to July 13, when Conrad took his life, she sent several text messages to friends that he was already missing and not returning her texts, when in fact he was texting her all throughout these text messages to her friends. The prosecution presented that this was her way of determining what kind of attention she might give if it were true that he was missing or committed suicide. The prosecution shared most, if not all, of the text messages, which included one from the following day stating, quote, you better not be bullshitting me and saying you're going to do this and then purposely getting caught, end quote. Several of her classmates got on the stand and talked about how she texts them wanting to hang out over and over again or apologizing for things over and over again. None of them would say they were very close to Michelle. None of them, in fact, would say that they were even her friend. After the prosecution presented their side of this case, the defense asked for a dismissal for lack of evidence. This was denied, and the defense went to give their side. The defense brought up that Conrad and his father had been in a physical altercation, and his father was, in fact, arrested for punching Conrad and putting him in the hospital. This was confirmed by Conrad's father, but I'm not going to go into it because I don't know much detail, and I think it was just a way for the defense to kind of present maybe an ulterior motive for why Conrad killed himself. They also put their expert witness, Peter Bregan, on the stand. Bregan stated that his theory was that Michelle was involuntarily intoxicated. Involuntary intoxication is not an openly used medical term. The definition that I found of involuntary intoxication is that it occurs when someone is tricked into consuming a substance like drugs or alcohol or when someone is forced to do so. If a charged crime is a specific intent crime, meaning that the criminal defendant must have had a specific intent to commit the crime in question, involuntary intoxication can be used as a defense to criminal charges if it prevents that defendant from forming the intent that is required. I'm not sure if he's meaning to state that she was involuntarily intoxicated by her parents or the doctors that were prescribing her meds because she certainly wasn't forced or tricked into taking them. In April 2014, she was prescribed five milligrams of the antidepressant Celexa. Bregan went on to testify that this drug contorted her helping nature until she convinced herself that abetting Conrad's suicide was itself a form of help. He stated, quote, both of them were out of their minds, end quote. 
He attempted to get the judge and others, I presume, to believe she was more of a victim than Conrad. That Conrad was manipulating her and abusing her by talking about taking his life over and over again until she thought that was what was best for him. At one point, Michelle's attorney states something along the lines of, it was his plan and she was just supporting it. I guess I, for one, do not understand that statement, because why would someone support the plan for a person they declare to love, who has a potentially long life ahead of them, to die? During the trial, it appears to me that Michelle looks deeply saddened, so I do have to wonder just why this all happened. The judge takes just two days to deliberate this case. And remember, again, it's just the judge deliberating. There is no jury. On June 16, 2017, Michelle appears in court, and now she looks scared and at times uncertain of what is going on. She holds a tissue to her face almost the entire time. The judge states something to the effect that Conrad wanted to die and was creating a way to make that happen. He purchased the generator and researched the timing on how this manner of suicide works. However, at some point, he gets out of the car when he is on the phone with Michelle. So basically, he stated that up until this point, it is Conrad's plan and his deal. But after he got out and she orders him back in, that is where the tide turns and she has now become responsible. The judge stated that it was at this point that she had a duty to protect his life, but did not do so. Now, I want to talk about this a little more because it has been stated in some of my research that Michelle texted him to get back in the car. However, with much more research, I have concluded that she did not text this directly to Conrad at that very moment. Instead, she later, after Conrad's death, text one of her friends that stated, quote, his death is my fault. Like, honestly, I could have stopped him. I was on the phone with him and he got out of the car because it was working and he got scared. And I fucking told him to get back in, end quote. So yes, she is the one who stated, she said this to him, but with all the things that we know that she texts her friends before and after Conrad's death that weren't true, how do we know for sure that this statement is true? That call ended at 7.58, and she would go on to call him again 28 more times. He chose to die, and then he chose to get out of the vehicle. So the real question here is, did he choose to get back in, or did she order him to get back in? The judge further stated in regards to Mr. Bregan's testimony of being involuntarily intoxicated, quote, the court did not find that analysis credible, end quote. Michelle was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter. On August 3, 2017, Michelle finds herself again in court for the sentencing. She's again visibly sad and scared. The judge states that he found her age, maturity, or even her mental illness not to have any significant impact on her action. However, he further stated that due to her age of 17 at the time of the crime, she is of greater promise of rehabilitation. He then issues a sentence of two and a half years with 15 months to be served in the Bristol County Court of Corrections, and the remainder is suspended. She was also to be placed on five years probation. At this same hearing, Michelle's lawyers requested a stay of sentencing until all her appeal options were exhausted. The judge granted the stay, making it very clear that this stay is only until the state Supreme Court rules, not the federal Supreme Court. So Michelle was able to leave the court that day with her family. At this time, you have a family that is in shock. Yes, she is found guilty, but now the question is, will she ever serve time for this crime? This case has divided a community, as many believe she is totally responsible, and if it were not for her actions, Conrad would not have gone through with it. Others believe that her actions were wrong and morally incomprehensible, 
but not criminal and not something that she should be punished for. On February 6, 2019, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court ruled that Michelle acted with criminal intent and therefore her involuntary manslaughter conviction was ordered to stand. A year and a half after the stay of Michelle's sentencing, we see a much more mature Michelle enter the court. The judge orders the stay lifted, and on February 11, 2019, Michelle began serving her sentence. On September 19, 2019, Michelle's attorneys requested early parole, and this was denied. Michelle has one open appeal with the U.S. Supreme Court. After entering the prison system, she was placed in a one-person medical cell where she could be monitored. After a month, she was moved to the general population. She attends some classes. She attends a mindfulness, food safety, and small engine repair class. She also is in some courses on civil and career readiness, and she is on a waiting list for a culinary arts program. Michelle also has a job in the kitchen. Michelle, who is now a 22-year-old woman, is set to be released in March 13. This is about two months shy of completing her full 15-month sentence. In July 2019, a bill was introduced in Massachusetts encouraging someone to take their life is a crime. The bill is being called Conrad's Law. This proposed law would make it a crime punishable by up to five years for anyone who intentionally coerces or encourages a suicide or attempted suicide. In the end of this story, we have two families that lost. There are no winners here. One family lost their son, brother, grandson, and another family lost part of their daughter. Reporter Jesse Barron states, quote, that night he needed someone and she was not that person, end quote. It is certain that Michelle will have to live with her actions, or really her words, for the rest of her life. I like to dig into crimes that are either really truly fascinating for one reason or another, or in this case I liked it from the beginning because of the precedent it could set for other cases like this. We live in a changing world with social media and how will that play out in our criminal justice system is still really evolving. And with that, there is a new case that has similarities to this one. I am talking about that of Ng Young Yu, who pled not guilty just this past Friday, November 22, for involuntary manslaughter of her boyfriend, Alexander Uterla. They both attended Boston College, and Alexander jumped to his death from a parking garage in May, just hours before his college graduation. It is being stated that she told him numerous times to, quote, go kill yourself, end quote, and provided a psychological abusive relationship in the nearly 74,000 text messages exchanged. We will stay on top of this ongoing story and bring you updates as they arise. So, Jenna, let's catch up on the crime of Conrad Roy III. You know that I am a huge advocate for mental health. I know that everyone has a mental health just as they do a physical health, and I firmly believe we all need to take care of our mental health just as we do our physical health with no stigma attached. This case has a lot of discussion over mental health, both Conrad's and Michelle's. I do believe that both clearly have some mental health issues, but they were both seeking help through medication, treatment, and or therapy. I also most always say that any crime is going to have some aspect of mental health component, and it is just a matter of how much of that effect it actually had on that person in the time of the crime. So what do you think about her mental health and committing this crime? Yeah, I definitely think that, I'm not going to lie, I think when I first heard about it, I was like on the side of, oh, it's 100% her fault. 
Um, no one can say that to someone. And, you know, with all the cyberbullying going on, it was kind of nice to see finally a result where the, you know, in this case, not exactly bully, but, you know, in other cases, the bully actually got kind of what they deserved. But at the same time, like that quote from, I think it was the prosecution that said, you know, he needed someone to help him and she was not that person. It almost goes, it almost helps her case. She wasn't that person. She had her own problems. And it was like sort of a case of two very unstable people put together. Like there's not going to be a great outcome from that. But I don't think, and I think that the jury and the judge did a good job of, of, um, being able to look at the situation and say, you know, her age and her mental impact or her mental health did not impact his ultimate decision um, to kill himself. That was her, that was her doing. Um, so I guess we just like have to trust that, that the jury and the judge understood that and they, they could assess her mental health well enough because I don't know, I don't know her personally, but it is, it's hard to hear that, you know, it was just too, I don't think she knew what she was doing. I think that in the end, you know, she, just didn't she wanted that attention especially when you said that she I had no idea that she actually told her friends he was missing before he um before he committed suicide which does just show that it was purely for attention because otherwise why would she say that if it was if she genuinely thought she was helping him out I don't think she'd go around telling her friends right and after that um what was interesting too is after all of this was said and done I don't know how long it was after his death but she put together this fundraiser and it was called Homer's for Conrad. And, you know, it was to raise awareness of mental health, but it just was all evolved around her. It was, in fact, it was even put on in her town where some of his friends were saying, well, why aren't you putting this on where he lived, where, where he had friends and, you know, that kind of thing. But she at one point said to them too, well, it's not about that. It's about me. And, and I'm the one putting this on. So just clearly it did show that she was attention seeking. Um, but you know, one of the biggest questions in this case that it came out was quoted a lot was what was Michelle Carter thinking? And, you know, I know that I'm older and, you know, I text, but I certainly don't text like, like younger, you know, like you do. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, just, you know, is it normal? I, I do, kids your age like have that relationship based solely on texts more than actual, you know, getting to see each other. I mean, there were many times when they were like almost come to me, but then they wouldn't. It was just a relationship strictly, you know, based around these text messages. Yeah. I mean, that itself I think is kind of wild, but um, I think that texting at least, yeah, no, definitely people take it so seriously that's a term a lot of us young kids would say is like when someone is texting and maybe they're ignoring you or they're gonna send you a one-word text or whatever it's like oh you're playing games and like it's actually a thing I personally don't love to text because um a lot of my friends know like if they start texting me and we're texting back and forth I'll just FaceTime them (laughs) so I'm like clearly you have time I have time let's talk but um I there I know a lot of people that take that kind of thing so seriously and it, it it's kind of it just shows how how we just disassociate ourselves from our phone it's like that's 
not a relationship that you texting someone is not a relationship, you know, but it's not surprising to hear that this all went down through text to me. Well, in one of the, actually, I think it was just a journalist. It wasn't anybody that was put on the stand or anything. They did say that, that texting can, people can forget that there's another person behind that text. Like exactly, it just becomes yeah. just words and that, you know, they don't know and they don't think about that other person. But what I can't get over either is it was, it was, really clear that the judge that was the deciding factor of when Conrad got out of the car because it was like mm -hmm. he was having second thoughts and then she told him over the phone you know to get back in the fucking car or whatever and so that was like the deciding factor for the judge like up until that point it was on Conrad but then at that point you know he said she had an obligation and and I guess I just think she had an obligation you know if she didn't think she could do anything why did she not tell his parents or call his exactly. sister or tell a friend or, you know, call the police? I, I don't know, just anything. And then I go to two, you know, did she not really think it was going to happen? Uh, but right. if she really didn't think it was going to happen. Why did she keep encouraging it? Why didn't she just say, I don't want to talk to you anymore or something? I don't know. Yeah. I, and I'd like to think that she would know if he's serious or not because I've had a relationship with someone who's sent me suicidal texts and I even knew that it wasn't exactly serious. Like I always, of course, had a level of concern that was, well, I'm not going to pretend you're just joking. But at the same time, I would never encourage it even, and it never got this far, but even if it were like annoying, you know, even if you're like, oh, well, they were dating for one. So that's even crazier to me. Like they hadn't broken up. He wasn't, they hadn't broken up and he's texting her. I can't believe you broke up with him. I'm going to kill myself, but they were still together and she was encouraging it. So I just don't get where that level of she, I don't know. Did she even like, what was the defense's case? Did they even try to, did she try to say, Oh, I was helping him or like, what would be her, what would be why she said these things at all to him? Like, why yes, would it actually, why would there even be a defense? You know? She said those words. She said that she thought she was helping him because he wanted to die so badly. Um, that's what he continually told her. And so in her mind, I, you know, or something, but those were her words that she was helping him because that's what he wanted. Um, but again, I just, you know, I don't understand how anyone can think that's helping Exactly. And even if you, if you felt like you wanted it, it's your job to then propose another option that's going to help him feel better. You know, like that can't be the only way. Right. And, you know, I know some people are worried about, like I said, one of the reasons I like this case is because of the precedent it may set even for this, you know, upcoming yeah. case. And some people are afraid of that precedent because will it go into like physicians talking to, you know, people with terminal mm -hmm. illnesses and, and will it go into, you know, even family members who talk to elderly, you know, family members about, you know, their last days and how they want to live those. But again, I, you know, as I said earlier, this was not an elderly person. This was not a person who had a disease of any way. So she knew his, potentially he had a long life to live. So why right. would you then say, just go ahead, do it, do it now, you know? 
I, I can see how people are worried about that, especially because, you know, in some countries it's actually legal for elderly and people that are terminally ill to choose that. You know what I'm talking about? Right. Yeah. Is that like, I can't remember where that's at, but at the same time, it's exactly like you said, he had a whole life to live. So that was like, that's where you can't justify um, that action. And, but I also, I completely agree that she has set a precedent and, you know, there's times where I hear the story and I do feel bad for her. Cause I think she truly just did not, she did not think she'd get punished at all. There's right. definitely, she couldn't have thought she'd get punished, especially after she told her friend that she even told him to get back in the car, but at the same time. And so then, and then there's still part of me that's kind of feels bad for her, but then it's like, you hear all these cyber bullying things and finally Finally, somebody gets, you know, the respect that they deserve. They killed themselves, but there were all of these factors and maybe it wasn't even their fault. So I kind of, there's part of me that feels like no matter what her intentions were, we needed this and we needed that law to become, um, so that, you know, kids that are going through this can know that there is a, there is a consequence for saying these things and doing and saying these things and texting these things to people. There is, it's not okay to just do it. And not only will you be reprimanded, you know, from your school or your family, but by the law. So I feel like that was, that needed to happen. Right. I agree. Because I think that we can't just say things and even like texting them because, and to my mind, texting is a way of saying them to, she was saying that those things to him and there has to be, you have to be held accountable for that. Um, yeah. And on that, on that, like thought, it is kind of, it, it gets into that, I don't know, a little bit scary area of, yeah, we have that, we have free speech, but should we? <laughs> like, I think people should be able to have opinions, but then, you know, you get into like hate speech. That's not okay. Right. Um, and uh, there is, there's been a lot of, you know, talk about is free, free speech. Should we be able to say all these things that we want to say? Cause some people obviously abuse that. Right. And so then it gets, it's like, okay, well, cyberbullying leads to suicide. A lot of suicides are from cyberbullying. And so then it's like, well, look at these consequences of our free speech. Right. It's kind of scary, but. And it's hard. It's a gray area of where to draw that yeah. line with it. And but I think just like with most cases, they go before a judge or a jury and then it's for them to decide, yeah, if it, if it went over that line. And I, I personally, too, believe that this went over the line. Um, I do feel bad for her, like you said, as well. But I, I, I think she knew what she was doing on some level. I think she knew. Um, yeah. And I just don't think she thought she'd get caught. And I don't think that she realized how severe the consequences would be. Right. Because I think that when you had said, you know, the judge said, um, the judge decided that her age and mental stability didn't have a significant impact on her decisions. But at the same time, she was a candidate for rehabilitation. I do believe that. I don't, I don't think, I mean, I didn't watch um, the documentary on it or anything. But I, from what you've told me, don't think she'd do it again. Right. But like I said, I think it was a good thing that he, that she was convicted of involuntary manslaughter. I think that she deserved that. 
Yeah. When they interviewed several people in her town or in the surrounding towns, you know, it was, it was really quite interesting to see the differing opinions, you know, some were like, you know, almost just like lock her up and throw away the key. I don't think that should have happened because she was young. She, you know, and I, I do think that her mental health played a factor in it. Um, it by no means excused it though. Um, right. So I think the sentence, it was actually pretty, pretty good. She will, she yeah. will pay for what she did, but she still has a lot of life ahead of her that she can change things. She can turn things around. Maybe even who knows, hopefully she will use this part of her life to maybe help people once she gets out of jail and can be kind of an advocate, you know, in a, in a way to help people with such things. Um, so you talked about this a bit earlier, but it was one of the only questions I have written down that we haven't talked about, but I'm curious to know, you said he left his passwords for his laptop and his phone and everything. Um, where did he leave those or for who did he leave those? He, yeah, he wrote that down and he wrote a kind of a um, goodbye letter, a suicide letter. Oh, okay. So, so he knew that his parents would, would find that and would go into it, which is interesting because I, I, that's kind of what eats at me is obviously everyone wants to know what he was thinking. Did he really think he had nothing to live for? Did he really think, you know, and there's even people who really like certain religions, especially really obviously do not, um, they see committing suicide as like a sin, you know? And so some people might think that suicide is an act of um, attention, but it's just, so it's hard to know. Did he really feel, you know, like he knew what she was doing and he, he did want people to see and he felt so desperate, but at the same time, he deep down, he, cause he clearly left them so people would see everything that he was talking about. Right. And so it's like, it's just, I want to know what he was thinking. What did he do it because he knew what she was doing was wrong or just because he just wanted to see how, so people see how he felt, you know, it's, we'll never I know, know it that. gives you, it gives me mixed feelings because yeah, like on the one hand, I think, well, he, yeah, like you said, he left it there. So he knew people were going to find out about um, all these text messages back and forth between the two of them. And people were going to find out that he, you know, was struggling with depression again, but yet then he also kind of left it there for, you know, like what, like, to say she's at fault. It's sad. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that the family, I hope that the family feels at ease with her sentence because I think I would just because they are young and it's kind of one of those things that I don't think I'd want her to, like you said, people um, wanted her thrown in jail and throw away the key or whatnot. I don't think I would ever want that, but I really do hope that she does understand what she did and I hope other people and other kids I hope that people let children not children but teens see this so that they actually know the severity of of hurting someone you know yeah his mom I don't think she wanted yeah for her to be punished worse than it was she at one point had said um, she kind of even struggled on camera talking about Michelle and just said she's not well you know, and she's right. just not well. And that's all she could really say. Um, because it's, it's not like she wanted to defend her, right. but she also was willing to, 
recognize that, again, there was some mental health issues going on with Michelle as well. So, yeah. well, to end this, I just want to, you know, let everybody know that if there is somebody in their life that is suicidal or has, you know, any indications of it, I just want to put it out there that the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255 um, because that's important. Uh, suicide is, is a huge thing. Um, this case brings it to light a lot more and maybe um, we can just help, yeah, some people going through this situation uh, know that there is help out there. Yeah. Okay, to let someone know that there's someone going through that. Losing, I think it's worth losing a friendship to not lose a friend. You know, so if yeah, you know someone that's going through that, you owe it to them to tell someone. But yeah, I think that this case was a good one to talk about. All right. Well, thanks everybody again for joining us on our first episode. And we will be back with you in a couple weeks where Jenna will be presenting the case. And then we will catch up on it. All right. Sounds good. Bye, everybody.